I will now talk about the aspect of our conduct and behavior which is actually the first part of the teaching. It's always in that order. Except when we look at the Noble Eightfold Path, which is our direction and our guideline how to reach that state of complete lack of any dukkha. In that, in the Noble Eightfold Path, it actually starts with the part which is wisdom inside and then comes to the part which is our moral conduct and behavior and the third part is our concentration. I have talked about the concentration and the wisdom insight and just to refresh your memories and say one sentence about it. I've explained to you that the concentration part, the real meditation starts when we pass a threshold of trying to be on the breath and it uh, arise the sensations that are due to our inner being and up to then our concentration is limited to the moments when we are actually on the breath or on the other meditation subject and the wisdom inside part that we have talked about concerns impermanence, dukkha and substancelessness now the last one is the hard one to understand and primarily difficult to understand from logical and ideas thinking from that way to understand it is almost impossible because if there's nobody here who's sitting here meditating so it needs concentration and it needs the practices which I have outlined and I'd like to repeat the instruction on one of them because I think it wasn't quite 100% understood when you open yourself up with a zipper and take out the bits and pieces you're supposed to look at these bits and pieces and inquire where am I it doesn't matter that now supposedly there aren't any bits and pieces inside the body it's supposed to give you an idea that the identification system which we have generated for ourselves is based on something which isn't quite the way we thought it was. So that is the question, where am I? So there are several of those insight methods which I have outlined to you. There are several of those methods to become calm. Loving-kindness con- uh, meditation and the attention on the breath are the two primary ones that we have talked about. There are quite a number of others but we can't do all that in a short period of time. So we have methods, and methods need to be used. And when we use the methods, we will eventually see that something's happening. Without the methods, one flounders. There's uh, ideation and opinion then. Method is straightforward. The third part the moral conduct in Pali Sila is considered to be the base 
the base on which we can build. And it is quite clear that if our moral conduct is of such a nature that there is constant regret or shame or that our conscience is bothering us or that there is constantly anger and dislike, that obviously meditation can't happen because our mind is too full of something else. On the other hand, we need not think that we have to become perfect in our virtue before we can meditate. Practically nobody would be meditating. We have to work on all levels. We work on three levels. We work on the level of the concentration, we work on the level of insight and on the level of purification. Now I've also given you methods for purification the substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome. Believe me, even if you haven't tried it yet, that's the crux of the matter. The substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome. It's an ongoing process. And we have to recognize what's unwholesome. Don't justify. Everything that's negative is unwholesome. It's so simple. And who are we making unhappy with all that negativity? Ourselves. Why are we so foolish to make ourselves unhappy? Primarily because it hasn't been pointed out to us. Now here's the Buddha pointing it out. The moral conduct and behavior in Buddhist terminology has also more than just substitution process. There is a set of injunctions by the Buddha for every person, valid for every person, that one should abide by. And this set of injunctions also assumes immediately that one practices the opposite. The set of injunctions, there are five, And they're not unfamiliar, even if we haven't heard them before, because they're not that different from the kind of injunctions given in other traditions. Any valid spiritual path recognizes that moral conduct is the base for inner growth. Without that, there is no foundation in which it can grow, that growth. There's nothing that has any kind of fertilizer for it. So these five are the five precepts. And they say not to do five things because they will give us unhappiness They give us difficulties in life and at the same time they would make difficulties for others. So the idea behind it is that as we protect ourselves from this kind of negative behavior, we also protect others. If we don't protect ourselves and just tell others not to do it, it's again the same problem. So we have to start always at the center, which we are ourselves.
The first one is extremely familiar to anyone who has ever gone to Sunday school, and most people have when they were small. And it's worded differently, though. It's worded, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Now, it's not worded, thou shalt not. It's, I undertake the training. Because the Buddha was a realist (coughs) and realistically saw that we need to train. We're not immediately and impulsively of good behavior. We need to train ourselves. We have to see the value of it. We have to understand why we are protecting ourselves. Now, why are we protecting ourselves from killing living beings? Because killing is connected with hate. And we want to protect ourselves from hate and greed. Now, hate and greed are the underlying factors of all our negative behavior. And they are generated through our delusion of me. So hate, greed, and delusion are called the unwholesome roots. But fortunately, we also have wholesome roots. We aren't totally bereft just in that unwholesomeness. We have the opposite. We have love, generosity, and wisdom. So we are actually born with six roots. Three wholesome, three unwholesome. And unless it's pointed out to most people, it never occurs to anybody. And that's where the genius of a spiritual master like the Buddha comes in. It's put in the most simple language and it is connected to methods so that we can actually use it, do it. Our injunction then is to minimize the unwholesome roots, to cultivate and develop the wholesome. What could be more logical? So we have the first one, not to kill, which is an unwholesome root rooted in hate. And it tells us at the same time to practice the opposite. And the opposite is, of course, loving kindness and compassion. Because if we have loving kindness and compassion, we would most likely not even have the idea of killing, never mind the deed. I've talked at some length about unconditional love. So I'll say a little bit about (coughs) compassion at this time. I think I've said already that the near enemy to compassion is pity. And the near enemy is called a near enemy because it appears to be identical. But it only appears that way. It isn't. It's quite opposed to it and therefore an enemy. The far enemy is cruelty, which is easy to see. But the near enemy (coughs) is the one that we have very often difficulties with. So if somebody tells us of their sorrows, of their difficulties, and or we see someone who is not well, and we have pity for that person, it means two things. First of all, we're separating ourselves. 
I'm all right, that person is not. I'm pitying that person. So we are in separation. And secondly, when we <coughs> pity somebody, we're sorry for that person. And sorrow, sorry is sorrow. So we've got two having dukkha instead of one. We call that double dukkha. <coughs> the only sensible and logical thing to be doing is to have empathy, compassion with feeling. And that's only possible if we have already examined our own dukkha without suffering from it. Now that sounds, it's only half a sentence and sounds fairly easy. It's rather difficult actually. But it's got to be done. Because if we don't, we're constantly going to be sorry for ourselves. So not only are we going to have dukkha, everybody has, we're going to aggravate that dukkha with being sorry for ourselves on top of it. So the first lesson that we need to learn on this path in this particular aspect is a fact of recognizing and accepting dukkha. If we can't accept it, we're always going to be at loggerheads with it. And being at loggerheads makes it even worse. It just is. And as it is, and everybody has a different name for it because it's been a different experience, but it's all under the heading of Dukkha, and it's always written with a capital D. So we have that already to relate to. If we have it and we see it and we have compassion for ourselves, then we can have that for others because we can see that they're having Dukkha and we can see that they're suffering from it. But we can also see that that would eventually no longer be necessary. And the compassion which we have for ourselves for the difficulty that every human being goes through. Just remember for one moment your teenage years. I mean, just that. That's all. <laughs> if that isn't enough dukkha to turn one off forever, but it doesn't, unfortunately. It doesn't turn anybody off. We always want to be here again. But never mind those past years. We've all gone past those teenage years. What about now? Today? The reactions in the mind. The, the lack of peacefulness. The hopes. The wishes. The plans. The ideas. Also the guilts. The resentments. What about all that? Isn't that enough dukkha for anybody? Just what we have in one day? Never mind in a lifetime? So if we see it for what it is and then have compassion for ourselves because it does keep arising again and again until the me that's sitting in there is no longer available to have all those fancy reactions, until that time we need compassion. And when we find that compassion in our heart for ourselves and all the things that we think we're not doing well and all the things that we have difficulties with, then, and only then, do we have compassion for others. The more we have compassion for ourselves, the more we have compassion for others. We can see their difficulties quite clearly because we have them ourselves. They're no different. 
just like Jay was saying, our coughing is no different from each other. Mm-hmm. It's all one and the same, isn't it? So is our other suffering too. Excuse me. So as we realize the fact that there's nothing to blame, being a human being is difficult. There's nobody to blame. Not even our parents. They've had their own dukkha. And that they continued and propagated that dukkha so that we had also part in it. That's part and parcel of the human family. (coughs) It happens all the time. We are not just belonging into that one family where there's father, mother, and uh, sister and brother. We are living in the human family. And there's so much dukkha out there. And people are shooting each other. And one might actually get in the way of the bullet. So, there's dukkha everywhere. And it's happening all the time. We have to learn that only compassion alleviates that. Trying to get away. There's nowhere to go. Because... It's all happening in here. And that we take with us. If we learn compassion for ourselves, not sorrow, not being sorry, not feeling pity for ourselves, but just recognizing the fact that we are doing a difficult thing and we are trying to use it Uh, for a learning experience, at that moment, the mind becomes at ease. It becomes level-headed, so to say. It's no longer dipping down in those valleys of depression and emotion. But it sees things as they really are. And then we see things as they really are. We see others with the same viewpoint. They're having dukkha. Now, when we are sorry for them, we haven't really looked at our own. When we have compassion for them, we may actually be able to help them. Because with that compassion for ourselves, we have already helped ourselves. With that compassion for ourselves, we have already let go of the suffering. We have seen things on a level of just the way they are. So, That is the only way we could be of some use to another person that's suffering. Being sorry for them isn't going to do them any good at all because they're going to get even sorrier for themselves because we are supporting that kind of attitude. So compassion and loving kindness go hand in hand. Sometimes it's difficult to have love for a person whom we think has done very um, terrible things or has hurt us in some way. It's very difficult to start out with that. But surely we can learn to have compassion for such a person because if that person had been happy and fulfilled, none of those terrible things would ever have happened. Only an unhappy person will do things which are objectionable. And every time we hear anything or we see any action which is objectionable, we can remember the person 
who is saying it or doing it is unhappy. There is no happy person that will do anything that will make other people unhappy. It's totally impossible. So if we have anything in our remembrance that is of um, very negative nature, compassion is the only way to deal with that. If anything happens to us at this time, which we have find objectionable, only compassion. It's the only way to deal with it. And from that compassion, for the, and the realization that the person who's perpetrating it is unhappy, can grow the feeling of an unconditional lovingness, not because that other person has all of a sudden become lovable. That has nothing to do with it. Whether anybody is lovable or not has nothing to do with unconditional love. It's just that we can educate our heart to be really worthwhile in its action and function. It's the only kind of worthwhile function that the heart has. So compassion is, so to say, a companion for loving kindness, and it can be a forerunner of it. It's easier to recognize the fact that the difficulties which arose arise out of or rose out of unhappiness. And when we do that, and do that over and over again, again it becomes habitual. And it isn't trying to tell others what they should do. That never works. Never. Nobody will do what somebody else tells them to do because they ought to. It has to come out of our own understanding and feeling. And if it comes out of that feeling that there is something that we can actually give from our heart, it, everything becomes so much easier. There's an inner softness which tries to adapt itself to the prevailing circumstance. doesn't mean that we become a doormat. On the contrary. A doormat is being trod upon. A person who has compassion is someone who has their own personal authority. So the opposite of the training not to kill living beings is the training in ourselves to gain access to love and compassion within our hearts. Everyone has it, but many people close the door on it for many different reasons, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of resentment and rejection, other times out of fearfulness, any kind of reason. There is no justifiable reason. All the reasons when we, why we close the door on compassion and unconditional love are only to our own detriment. Nothing else happens except that we ourselves are only half alive. Not killing living beings includes all living beings, from the smallest to the largest, from the flea to the elephant. And whether we're going to, if we're gardeners, kill the lice on the roses or the bacteria in our own stomachs, that is up to each person. That everyone has to figure out for themselves. There's no pat answer. Everyone knows what is the best thing to do for themselves. 
These are guidelines. Guidelines to develop the wholesome roots and to let go of the unwholesome. The second one is concerned with greed. We undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given, which means we don't take anything that doesn't belong to us. Now, obviously, that concerns stealing, but it goes further than just stealing. It also goes to be meticulous, to being meticulous with other people's belongings, not to grab something because the other person has so many of them or not to grab something because there doesn't seem to be an owner around or not to look after other people's things because they're not mine, not to have any kind of feeling of wanting what isn't really one's own. Obviously, there is the antidote for that. The non-taking of what's not given means that we practice and train ourselves in generosity. Now, generosity is the first of the ten virtues which the Buddha enumerates as being the training ground on the spiritual path. And the first one on any of the lists that he has given is always the entry. It's so to say the doorway. doesn't mean that the others are not important. They're equally important. But if we don't practice the first one, then there is no access. It is the opening of the door. Now, generosity has many facets, and uh, I'd like to explain a few of them. Generosity is very important because it's concerned with others. We are let go of our egocentric thinking and behavior for the time that we are generous because we're thinking of the well-being of somebody else. Now, there are ways and means of being generous. Certainly, we can give material goods, money. We can give time. We can share our skills. We can listen to others. That's a kind of generosity which has become sort of outmoded. People don't really listen to each other anymore. So nowadays people pay to be listened to, which is unfortunate. But that's the way we have done it with our lack of communication. Listening well to somebody else is also generosity. Love is generosity. The Buddha said there are three kinds of generosity. The generosity of a beggar, of a friend, and of a king. The generosity of a beggar, he says, is the kind of generosity when we give away that what we don't want anyway. Like maybe giving away things to invite elephants here. We don't want that junk anyway, so we're glad to get rid of it. A friend friend's generosity is sharing. And that's the kind of generosity we can aim for, sharing with others, having others as important as ourselves. It's a kind of injunction which is difficult to follow, 
but we can practice. And then a king's generosity is the generosity where one gives away more than one keeps. It's very rare, and people who do that usually become quite famous. But if we do it to become famous, it doesn't work. <laughs> so generosity needs to be practiced, whether one feels generous or not, in order to get away from this constant me and mine syndrome. I want. I want this and that. I want a good meditation. I want a pleasant life. I want people to love me. I want. I want. And many people try to bulldoze their way through those I wants. And of course they find that it is not at all uh, conducive to success. The Generosity has a totally different result. If, for instance, you think for a moment that one is very generous with one's unconditional love, the more of it we give away, the more we've got. And the interesting aspect of that is that this is a law of nature. The more we give away, the more we've got on all levels, and nobody believes it. And very few people have the courage to try. The more one gives away on any level at all, the more there is within one. Whether that is love, or listening, or time, or goods, or money, it always comes back to one. But if one does it for that reason, it doesn't work. Because that is again, of course, the marketplace mentality. The marketplace mentality is the one that creates all our sorrows. The marketplace mentality is the one that's constantly caught in dichotomy. The marketplace mentality is always caught in me and mine. It's always caught in the separation. When our meditation becomes better, we obvi obviously are able to have a kind of consciousness which also leads to an experience of unity and totality, not a thought of it, not trying to tell somebody that we and the earth are really the same, but the experience of it. And as we experience this, that feeling of totality and unity, we experience it with everybody. It's not just out there, it's all everywhere. So everyone else then appears to be part of ourselves. <coughs> then it's very easy to be generous. But until that happens, it's quite useful to deliberately try. Now the Buddha also said another sentence, which is quite interesting. <coughs> he said, the purity of the receiver purifies the gift. In other words, one needs a bit of wisdom and discrimination where one's generosity goes. It isn't always the same kind of generosity and it isn't even always appropriate. One needs a bit of understanding because one doesn't have unlimited time nor unlimited material possessions so that one has to know where one is giving it to. 
And as one tries to do the very best with one's generosity as one can, as what it comes to a place of a person of purity, the gift itself is purified because of that, because it's going to be used in purity. So that means that we have some discrimination about our generosity. But that doesn't mean not to practice it. It just means being alert to what we're doing, mindfulness. Generosity has been used by the Buddha over and over again as one of the great blessings. The blessings that make life an easy passage. People often, many people, find life a very difficult passage because the things they think and the things that then happen because of that thinking. And also what we think makes our companions appear because birds of a feather flock together. The way we think, we attract those that think likewise. So there we have an easy way of understanding how important it is to let go of that which we grab and hang on to and say, I've got to have this because that spells safety for me. Material possessions have never spelled safety. Safety and security lie within us. Generosity, the open-heartedness, lets go of a great deal of the boundaries and the fences that we have built around our heart. And when we let go of those boundaries and those fences, we feel a little bit more freedom. Freedom you cannot count in the coin of the realm. It's not, you can't pay for it. So all these qualities that we can develop counteract the unwholesome roots, in this case the unwholesome root of greed. The unwholesome root of greed is not only wanting things for myself, of course it shows itself that way, but it is intrinsically connected to the craving to be. The craving to be which keeps us going again and again in samsara, the realm of birth and death. So generosity is our first step that can take us out. The giving, the light-hearted giving, because it is, a kind of togetherness with each other where what I have can be shared by others. Basically, we own nothing. We don't even own this body. If we did, we would tell it what to do, wouldn't we? We wouldn't want it to have aches and pains and not be able to sit and all the rest of it. We don't own it at all because it's going to disappear at the most inopportune moment. <laughs> So how about all the rest of the stuff? If we don't even own this, what about the rest of the stuff that we call mine that we might even have insurance policies for? <laughs> On the spiritual path, everything goes the other way than it does on the material path. The marketplace mentality is exactly the other way from the... Uh, elevated consciousness which arises through spiritual practice. 
The third precept. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, sexual misconduct has been debated over the decades, <laughs> and I think we finally, I think anyway, I don't know, finally come to an understanding what it's all about. Anyway, the Buddha knew it two and a half thousand years ago. It means not hurting another physically or emotionally through any kind of sexual practice. What it entails on the other side of it, which is the injunction, is to be faithful, trustworthy, reliable in all our relationships with other people, even those, of course, that are not sexual. Our friends, our associates, our um, acquaintances, our colleagues, those that we work with. Reliability, responsibility, trustworthiness. If that is part of our makeup, we feel at ease with ourselves. We don't have to remind ourselves that we promised something. We know when we promise, we keep it. On the sexual uh, relationship, that is, of course, of the greatest importance. And I'm quite sure that everyone here has uh, either read or heard about the book which was delineating all these um, malpractices in spiritual centers and so forth, which had to do with sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct is the one where the greatest disharmony arises. The disharmony in the family, the disharmony in spiritual centers, the disharmony in even at the workplace, anywhere where we go, if there's sexual misconduct, the disharmony is enormous. Sexuality, as I've already mentioned to you, is the strongest of the sensual desires. Because it is the strongest, it often plays havoc with people. And when we had, I think it was about 20 years ago or something, that sexual revolution where it was supposed to be all right to have sex with anybody, it didn't make anybody happy either. That's not where we get happiness from. And I think most people have meanwhile found that out. Maybe some haven't yet, I don't know. But on the spiritual path, sexuality is an important aspect, as you can see, that it has been singled out by the Buddha to be included in the fight that we train ourselves for. So we can see that there is something very important about it. Now, when we look at our own sexuality, and if, if it isn't something that we deal with easily, we have to learn to deal with it. And I'd like to mention at this point in time that that particular meditation method which I told about, the zipper and taking all the bits and pieces out and looking at one's own, takes away a lot of that sexual fever and that sexual desire. Man, don't do that to somebody else. Just do it to yourself <laughs> if that happens to be a problem. It is actually one of the most are used methods in order to counteract this particular difficulty. Now, if we look at family life, and if family life is well established, then sexuality is also well established. If there isn't family life, and we can't establish a routine in it, we need to examine our own 
uh, craving and desires. If we can have a kind of basis on which it doesn't become an overriding difficulty, we have a good chance on the spiritual path. If it is an overriding difficulty, we've got to solve that one first. And this is why this particular precept is really a very important one for if anyone, for anyone who has some difficulty with that particular aspect of the being. It is the strongest desire. Now, if one takes one's spiritual path as one's priority, one very soon finds out that sexuality is not only the strongest desire that we have, but it is also a very strong force, and therefore it can be transformed and become a very strong force towards the practice of the spiritual path. In other words, celibacy. But that is not part of the five precepts. Not at all. This is part of the precepts that those people take who want to make the spiritual path their own whole life. And it is possible to transcend and transform the sexual desire into a strong force towards the achievement of total freedom. And this is what is usually done and certainly was done in the Buddhist dispensation that monks and nuns are celibate. So for lay people for which these precepts are done, this is not at all mentioned. It has nothing to do with it. It's a sideline I'm explaining. But what I'm saying is that if there's any problem with that part of one's <coughs> makeup and one's being, and it's not unusual that that should be the case, it needs to be solved. Because if it isn't solved, the practice of meditation will be constantly interrupted. The reliability, the responsibility, the trustworthiness, the feeling of being obligated to have a relationship with the people around one which is based on trust also belongs to all the other relationships which we have, all of them. They all need to be based on trust. If we can't trust each other, we can't be honest to each other. And if we're not honest to each other, we can't help each other. Honesty does not mean becoming critical. That's not honesty, that's critical. Honesty is nothing other than speaking from one's heart and not being fickle with one's affections. And we have many relationships in our lives we're not just having the one-to-one -one relationship. We have relationships with our children, with our parents, with our teachers, with our students. We have relationships in, on many levels. And these relationships all need to be based on trust. And if we have friends that we can trust, that we know are going to remain our friends, even if there is some unhappiness within us, even if there is something appearing which may not be so lovable, then we have found a great treasure. Good friends are a great treasure. The Buddha calls them one of the 38 blessings, to have good friends. Good friends on the spiritual path. The fourth precept. I undertake the training to refrain from lying, harsh words, now, the, that lying in harsh words goes further 
when the precept is uttered, those two are usually mentioned. But it entails idle chatter, gossip, backbiting. It entails all the kind of language that we might use if there is a feeling of hate, dislike, or even spite. Our way of speaking is a very important aspect of the Buddha's teaching. He gave a whole discourse on it, on speech. It's called the exposition of non-conflict. And it's a whole discourse just on speech. And he gives an excellent formula for speech. And that formula can be used in our everyday life. And if we use it in our everyday life, we will find that it's much easier to have good relations. It goes like this. If we know anything that can be hurtful to another person and it's untrue, don't say it. If we know anything that will be hurtful to the other person and it's true, don't say it. If we know anything that can be helpful to another person and it's untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that can be helpful to another person and it's true, find the right time. It means that to find the right time to say something that we ourselves consider helpful, and the other person may not consider it helpful at all, but we think it's helpful, we first deliberate whether it is really helpful or whether we are trying to show how smart we are. And then we consider, is it really going to help that other person or are we trying to show that we know better, know more? If we decide that it's really going to help that other person and has nothing to do with our own ego uh, support system, then we find out whether the other person is ready to listen. And then, if we have that in the affirmative also, then we find out whether our whole feeling inside of us is strictly of unconditional love and compassion. And then we can talk. Well, so it would take a little while till we decide it's all right to say something, but that wouldn't hurt at all. There are far too many words in the ether anyway. Now, when we, I think I might have mentioned already that it's been statistically proven that words are only 7% of our communication. So you can see that the other 93% must be made up of something else and made up of the feeling behind it, which then manifests in body language and feeling <coughs> and tone of voice and the uh, expression of the face and so on, which is also body language. So this kind of formula could be used to the greatest advantage, particularly if we want to tell another person that they should do things differently from the way they're doing it. We need to remember at that time that the way they're doing it, they think is perfectly all right. It's just ourselves that think it's not. So it's only possible to change another person's ways if there's total love behind it and readiness to listen. 
If you've ever tried to educate small children, you know that if you say many things, many times they just cut off, they don't hear a word. It just goes all by them. You think that they are um, naughty and don't want to listen. They can't. It's just not happening. And the same with grown-ups. You can tell other people what they should be doing, but if it isn't done at the right time, with the right feeling behind it, it just won't happen. On the contrary, the other person might even get angry. And this is where a lot of relationships break down because one thinks one knows so much better than the other person. Look at me, I'm a meditator and you are not, so I must tell you, you must meditate. Or whatever it is that we think we need to tell that other person. Hardly ever works. In fact, one could say it never works. So this kind of uh, formula can be very helpful, but there's more to speech than that. It doesn't mean that the Buddha was interested in people becoming orators, not at all. He was interested in the fact that our relationship to each other is very often based on speech, and that speech is very often done impulsively and instinctively without deliberation. And therefore, we need to have a kind of um, understanding that we can very easily break up our relationships with other people because of wrong speech. Now, wrong speech, as far as this uh, precept is concerned, is gossiping and idle chatter. Now, gossiping means saying something about another person which is obviously not true. So it's again lying. And it's also telling those things about another person which are quite obviously detrimental to the repute of the other person. And the idle chatter is the one part of the, that particular precept which is most easily broken. This particular precept is the most difficult to keep. It's the one that we undertake the training, and that's it. We try. <laughs> <laughs> Idle chatter is the usual mode of communication between people. We talk for talking's sake. It's the cheapest and most easily accessible entertainment that we have. And we don't necessarily think about whether there's something important to say. Now, at times, of course, we do have something important to say, there are practical matters to discuss. There are things that need to be done and they have to be talked about. But that's about it. The other times, we use it as for entertainment value. And it has another aspect also. It's an ego support. If somebody talks to me, at least I know I'm alive. <coughs> if I'm sitting all by myself in a cave and nobody talks to me, I have to have my mind chatter. And this is what is happening in meditation. It's idle chatter. And if we can actually give it that kind of label, and it's a bit long, that label, but at least we know what we mean by idle chatter, we realize how much of that is really embedded within us. It's nothing but the ego trying to assert itself. I'm here, listen to me. I've got something to say, whatever it may be. The Buddha talks about, and I've mentioned that already, about noble friends and noble conversations. Noble conversations are those that are uplifting, that tell us something which we may not have known before, that explain those things to us which we may not have understood. They are 
on a level where they're meaningful to us and where we can feel happy and joyous after having had that conversation. So you can gauge your conversations in that way. Am I really uplifted from it or is it just passing the time? Many conversations have the opposite effect of being uplifting. One feels quite drained after that. So these kind of conversations, when they happen, we need to be the ones that change the trend of it. We need not contribute. If one works in an office where there is this kind of conversation at the water cooler, either we don't contribute and don't take part or we change it. If we don't know how to change it, we walk away from it. It is the kind of nourishment for the mind. Now, everybody is interested to have decent food for the body. We need to be equally interested in having decent food for the mind. <coughs> It's even more important because the mind is in charge. Our conversations, our input is the food for the mind and we are enormously affected. By the same token, we are enormously affected by the media. Check the media out when you get home tomorrow. Is it idle chatter? Is it gossip? Is it backbiting? Is it uh, lying? Or what is it? Is it criticizing? What is it? Is it helpful or is it hurtful? Check it out under those uh, criteria and I'm sure you're going to turn it off. It can't meet those standards. If we don't give our life certain standards, it's going to deteriorate. Because the standards which we try to keep are those that we have to set for ourselves and where we have to be vigilant practically all the time. Because the input from outside, if we take it in, if we allow it in there, it's constantly food which has to be digested. And as we digest it, it gets into our bloodstream. So the food for the mind which comes in the conversation in our speech is of course the same what we say, not just what is said to us on both levels. And when we look at what we say, we also have to understand that it entails how we say it. We can say the same thing in two ways. We can say to somebody, in a very angry voice, you're an idiot, and we may have made an enemy for life. But we can also say to another person, you're really an idiot. And it's perfectly all right. <laughs> so it depends on how we say it, because the other person feels that what's coming behind the words. And we have to deliberate on that. And the more we practice the loving-kindness meditation, And the more we practice loving-kindness and compassion in our daily life, the easier it will be to use our speech in a manner which will be conducive to happiness and for ourselves and others. It's a very important precept, and it's the easiest one to break. And it's always broken, but it doesn't matter. One just tries again. And one day it becomes habitual. And when it has become habitual, and if there's the slightest deviation from it, 
the mind immediately picks it up and says, hey, that wasn't quite right, let me try that again. But that means practice. Now the last one is, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. Well, of course, it's obvious that they're detrimental to one's own well-being, they're detrimental to other people's well-being. And the opposite of that is practicing mindfulness because we can't practice mindfulness while we're under the influence of drink or drug. And of course, it's the um, not medical drugs that we need for our well-being, for health, but it's the kind of intoxicating drugs that are quite <coughs> common nowadays. But in the Buddhist time, the precept was worded intoxicating substances, and they had all sorts of substances then. <laughs> They weren't as refined as they are now, but they were there. Humanity really hasn't changed in such a tremendous way as we think it might. We have different social and cultural backgrounds where certain things are more important than others to us and certain things no longer are important at all, but our difficulties have remained the same. Sexual misconduct, drink and drug, it's all the same. Buddha said those words two and a half thousand years ago. And he knew then how difficult it was if one didn't abide by the refraining from them. Mindfulness as a practice, as the opposite of getting the mind more distracted and disturbed than it is already. And mindfulness as a practice is something I've already discussed, I've talked about it, and I will mention it again tomorrow when I talk to you about what to do at home. So I don't want to go into that at the moment. But you realize, of course, and I'm sure you have remembered, that it means being attentive to oneself. And we have four levels of attentiveness, and I'll just enumerate them. The first one is our body action and body movement, all one and the same, the body. What, it, what we want to do with the body and the movements of the body. The second, our feelings, our emotions, how they make us act and react. And the third one are actually our mind states. I haven't mentioned that yet. The mind states which give rise to emotion on the one side and give rise to content of mind on the other side. <coughs> they are the mind states which are sometimes depression, sometimes they are greed, sometimes they are boredom, sometimes they are anger, sometimes they are just trying to be um, more assertive. All these are mind states. And we need to become aware of them if we want to be more easily alert to the emotion and on the other side the content of the think thought process. And the last one, the fourth one, is the content of the thought process. In other words, is it wholesome or is it unwholesome? <coughs> and then when we have learned the labeling, it becomes easier and easier to recognize those thoughts which are totally useless, which we are much better off without. And any meditator can, even after a short time, recognize the fact that thoughts are just thoughts and have no basis in absolute truth. And therefore, those that are detrimental to one's own well-being need not be kept. So mindfulness on four levels. 
and we use the one which is appropriate at the time and we try to stay away from anything that is detrimental to us namely drink and drug the taking of these four five precepts and doing that in an uh, environment where we have our peers helps us to remember and it helps us to recognize that we're trying to be on a level where we are looking after our own spiritual growth that we can be without any kind of worry or bad conscience any kind of feeling that we have done something that should not have been done because we have the guidelines and we try to keep to them if one takes the precepts and then breaks one of them and is aware of having broken it one sits down at home in a little corner and takes it again it's not something that can never be broken it's not something that has the connotation of everlasting sin the word sin does not exist in the pali language the only thing that exists is wholesome and unwholesome kusala and akusala so there is nothing to do except to train oneself <coughs> train oneself to let go of hate and greed and to substitute with love and compassion and generosity and practice a mindfulness which will eventually bring us to complete liberation because mindfulness is as the buddha said the absolute essential ingredient he said it's like salt in the curry <laughs> so without that we can't even practice now that's one part of the um taking on a certain aspect of spiritual endeavor as one's own partaking of that and the other part is taking refuge now i'd like to explain that to you also we take refuge in buddha dhamma sangha now we don't take refuge in the buddha as a person we take refuge in the enlightenment principle which the word buddha embodies buddha means the enlightened one it's not a name the buddha that we refer to in this teaching his name was siddhartha gautama and he was sort of a prince in a very minor little um area in uh, northern india but the enlightenment principle which exists in every human being is the one that has been fully embodied embodied in the buddha and as we take refuge in that we at the same time also take refuge in the fact that we ourselves have that same potential we carry the seed of enlightenment within and if we take refuge in that we don't have to take refuge in our own cleverness we don't have to take uh, refuge in our own ability to make money we don't have to take refuge into in our use or in our uh, health none of that remains all of it gets lost none of it is secure there is nothing that can be secure on the worldly level 
But as we take refuge in the enlightenment principle, we take refuge in that which is overriding and transcending all the worldly levels, anything that can be thought about in the world and goes to the absolute truth, to that which has a complete embracing of whatever exists. That enlightenment principle within us is that which will eventually, if we have been able to cultivate it and bring it out completely, take away any kind of sorrow. It will be that which brings complete freedom, total liberation. Now, complete freedom, total liberation is the liberation and the freedom from any kind of boundaries. So to take refuge in that means that we are taking refuge in the highest ideal. And taking refuge in the highest ideal gives one a feeling of protection. We know exactly where we're going. Whether we get there or not is not the point. We know what is most important. And that feeling of being protected within our own life and activity sphere makes everything already easier. Dhamma is a teaching. But the uh, word can also be translated as the law or the law of nature or the absolute truth. So we look at it maybe as these two things, as the teaching of the Buddha and the truth. And if we take refuge in absolute truth, that means that we're going to use the teaching in order to find that absolute truth. And we know that this is a safety procedure. Taking refuge means that we have found a shelter, a shelter for heart and mind. The Buddha said the Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. If we practice Dhamma, we are totally protected. We're protected from evil because we are protecting ourselves and we are connected in our thought processes to the highest idea. Taking refuge in the Dhamma means that we recognize this as the highest teaching which can bring us again into the liberated state where nothing ever can touch us again. So that again gives on a feeling of knowing exactly what is important. And the third one, the Sangha. It's unfortunately a word that has been used incorrectly in the West, so we'll straighten that out right now. The Sangha in this case does not mean everybody who sits on a pillow. I really wouldn't like to take refuge in all the people who are sitting on pillows. The Sangha means those people who have become enlightened using the Buddha's principles and guidelines. It's the enlightened Sangha that we take refuge in. At other times, the word Sangha means those who are ordained <coughs> as monks or nuns. That's the word Sangha. That's what it's used for in Pali. But at this time, when we take refuge, it is those people that have become enlightened. In other words, we recognize the fact that it's possible, <coughs> that there are those people that have done it. And therefore, we open ourselves up to that possibility. We no longer think this is a dream or this is something way out of the ordinary. It is the kind of lifetime endeavor for a human being that wants to have spiritual growth and liberation. And by recognizing the fact that over the centuries there have always been enlightened beings, 
and there are some now. There have always been, of course, a very small number of them. Even at the Buddha's time, there weren't that many. The story says, the Pali Canon says, there were 1,500 at the time. But we can't take those numbers exactly as they are said because anything in multiples of 500 means many, many. So we don't know the exact number. But if we assume that it's it's a correct number, it's 1,500, even that is not so enormously much at the time of the Buddha's lifetime. Nowadays, it would be probably more likely be five. I don't know. I'm guessing. I have no idea. So the Sangha, the Enlightenment, the enlightenment in human beings which is possible has always been possible and therefore is open to us. Now that kind of refuge is a shelter that we can live in, a shelter which protects us when particularly life again shows that it's full of dukkha and we don't have to take it quite so seriously, that dukkha. We can say, well, there is something else. And we have taken refuge in it. And I know that I can relate to it. So that way it also helps us. It helps us to see things in a different perspective. Taking refuge in these three means also that we are joining a community of those people who have already taken refuge in them and are actually practicing towards the fulfillment of the Enlightenment Principle. So it also has that kind of feeling of being part of a great community. Now to that maybe I should say, although there are 500 million Buddhists in the world and all of them taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, one cannot truthfully say that all these people would be practicing. But all of them would be devoted to the principle of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So we are joining a large community of people who see that as the greatest good. Taking refuge in precept is a kind of action which is like com- comparable to committing oneself to a pathway of goodness. That commitment needs to be kept and renewed. In Buddhist countries, people take refuge in precept at every opportunity, if it so happens seven times a week. It can become, of course, mechanical. That wouldn't happen to us. We are not that used to it that it would become mechanical. But whenever one has that opportunity, one should do it in order to renew the commitment. A commitment to such a thing is a kind of heart connection which we need to that which is transcending the personal and the worldly. The heart connection that we need makes that pathway possible. All right, any any questions that have come up? Yes. When one knows that part of their activity quite probably will involve killing, and to undertake the training to, to not kill seems too hard. 
you mean a kind of uh, livelihood that entails killing or what? Six. Oh yes. Okay. Um, there you have to um, look at it this way. This is a very important aspect, actually, and I'm glad you brought it up. Karma, or monks, I declare, is intention. Now, when you have those colonies of bees and when you extract the honey, I'm perfectly sure that you do not intend to kill a bee. You have no intention. But what does happen is, and I know I've done it myself, that some of them get caught in the shuffle and uh, some of them will die. But your intention is to get the honey and not kill the bees. So your intention is exactly as the precept says, that there will be accidents in that particular um, activity may cause you to eventually give up that activity. It's possible, right? Um, But the intention in any case is not the uh, negative one. So you can reinforce that intention by taking the precept. Yes. Yes, but you can catch them, can't you, in a beehive? Yes, well, don't. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> I know all about it. <laughs> it's a, it's not a worthwhile endeavor. No. <laughs> so um, it is uh, quite useful uh, to uh, probably leave that to the professionals, you know, and uh, not do it. It's one of the many Australian pastimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I had bees as well. <laughs> <laughs> My concern was with uh, stealing. Ah, taking the honey. Yes, but we do exactly the same with the milk. You see, it's uh, the milk of the cow belongs to the cow, and yet we do it. So, uh, if you can share. See, now, one of the things that people do with bees is, I happen to know all this, (laughs) they take all the honey and then they give the bees the sugar water to drink. And I don't think that's a good practice at all. Um, It's done a lot because you get far more honey that way. So uh, if you uh, don't do that, but if you can share, then you have to do that with calves too. I mean, some people take all the milk and give the calves some of this stuff that comes in, in bags. Well, that's also a wrong uh, way of doing it. You have to share it with them. And if you share it with them in a sensible way, uh, you can make a go of it, you know, and not take it in winter, of course. So it is possible. It's um, uh, it's a kind of, I mean, it's, a, it's husbandry. It's not exactly the same as uh, stealing something. But certainly one has to take the animals into consideration. Anything else? Yes. Uh, what about a, a scientist uh, participating in a lab where he 
Mm-hmm. Yes. I've, I've done, I was involved in sort of last Certainly. It's uh, not considered to be a very good livelihood for a Buddhist practitioner. And those people who are Buddhist practitioners and take it seriously and have had this kind of uh, involvement have often given it up. But there, there isn't uh, active will. And the purpose of, of, of the experiment is, is for the uh, you know, medical benefits for yes. um, discovering the cure for the disease. And I always have problems dealing with that, you know, well you have to make your mind up of course it's entirely up to you but uh, the uh, uh, experimentation with animals is also dubious and has been uh, questioned quite uh, uh, massively by scientists so uh, I, I have not enough knowledge to tell you this way or that but I can tell you that you are the one that has to make up your mind. And if you feel that um, conscience-stricken at killing animals, it's probably much better not to do it. And sometimes it's very difficult because you don't know another livelihood. But I do know people who have taken on a different study and done something else. You know. But it's entirely personal. Yes? But you don't actually kill. Well, it uh, contains the injunction of that precept contains the personal involvement in killing, the actual action of it. Because otherwise one would have to go step after step further and further and it would lead to probably uh, absurdities in the end. Mm -hmm. So it is the actual personal action of involvement in the killing of a living being, like swatting a fly or uh, hitting a mosquito or something of that nature. That's a personal action of killing. One has to make up one's mind whether one wants to do that or not. But yours is already two, three steps removed. Yes. I couldn't hear a word. What? That's the same thing. If you're hiring somebody to do the killing for you, it's the same thing. Yes, but you have to make up your mind what's, how to deal with that. If the rats are infesting the house, it's entirely your responsibility to figure that one out. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. Yes, that's one way. Yes. Your answer to her question made me wonder is about being a vegetarian. Because if I'm not, if I'm not involved in killing directly by going to, you know, some yes. sanitary uh, supermarket and buy a slab of meat. Yes. Well, uh, the Buddha's uh, guidelines were that one must not kill personally. And whether one wants to be a vegetarian or not is entirely one's own um, choice. He did not make a law about that. He did not want to make a law about food and eating. But one must not 
do the actual killing oneself because that has to be connected with an emotional uh, action also. And because of that, it's very detrimental. Naturally, it's a good idea to be vegetarian. But uh, he did not make a law of it. In fact, there was a fair bit of uh, controversy about it. So it's entirely up to oneself. It's a do-it-yourself job. Let gratitude arise in your heart for your connection that you have made and will continue with the Buddha as the enlightenment principle within you and the Dhamma, the teaching that will lead you there. Let that gratitude fill your heart a feeling of goodness and sweetness and let a loving feeling towards that enlightenment principle within you and the teaching that helps you to realize it envelop you. And now fill the person nearest you with gratitude for his or her presence here, supporting your own efforts, being your companion on the spiritual path. Envelop that person with a loving feeling arising out of your gratitude. And now extend your gratitude to everyone here. Everyone having supported everyone else's efforts. Companionship and the togetherness. Helping your own efforts. Let your gratitude reach out to each person filling them with it and embracing everyone with your loving feelings.
Now think of your parents and fill them with gratitude for all the good things that they have done for you, particularly looking after you when you were unable to do so by yourself. Embrace them with your love, arising out of your gratitude. Think of your nearest and dearest people. Fill them with gratitude that they are part of your life, that they care and are concerned about you and faithful to you. Fill them with gratitude, surround them with love. Think of all your friends and be grateful that they are your friends, part of your life, that they care, that they want to be with you. Let them feel your gratitude, let them feel your love. Think of all the people who make it possible for us to stay alive and live the way we do. Those that look after our mail, that look after the telephones, that grow our food, process it, package it and sell it to us. Those that make our clothing those that look after our health services, that fix our roads,
Think of as many people as you can that make it possible for you to stay alive and live the way you do. Fill your heart with gratitude for them and reach out to them, letting them know about your gratitude. Letting them feel your love. If there's anyone in your life whom you find very difficult, fill your heart with gratitude for the learning experience that this person is providing for you. Let him or her feel your gratitude and the love that comes from that. Now think of all the people over the centuries who have passed down the Buddha's teaching from teacher to disciple until it has reached us and those who have translated it for us (coughs) into our language. Think of the enormous benefit that you're having from all these people's efforts. Reach out with your gratitude Even though you don't know who they are or what they look like, let your gratitude go outward. Opening your heart wider and wider so that there's more and more of it, more and more of gratitude going out into the universe for the benefits that you're receiving on material and spiritual levels. 